This week, I've been thinking about people who have their thing. One thing, activity or practice, that allows them to channel their energies in a particular direction. Now, every morning I wake up and what I usually find is my wife, Laura Gonzalez, stretching, twisting, bending in various yoga poses on her yoga mat. Uh, Every afternoon I find her breathing deeply, doing pranayama, and most nights she'll be studying the Bhagavad Gita or reciting Sanskrit or something like this. And for me, this shows kind of incredible dedication to yoga. And it really shows that she's found her thing. And with every, you know, moment she kind of goes deeper into the practice, she seems to get more benefit from it. And for someone like me, who is quite scattered and dissipated in their life, and they, you know, have a kind of, you know, encyclopedic attempt to cover every subject matter, I'm quite envious of this. Uh, And so I thought this week, or this month on the podcast, I would interview my wife, Laura, as much as you can interview your wife, and find out a bit more about what it's like to uh, to have one thing that you're really into um, and, uh, and and maybe even learn a bit more about yoga itself. Um, I mean, this is not the only thing she does. <laughs> Laura is also a professor at the Royal Conservatoire in Scotland. Uh, she's written several books, uh, including a forthcoming book on hysteria. Uh, and she makes me dinner so uh, often so um she does other things apart from yoga um but but yoga seems to be at least from the outside her obsession um so welcome lara how did you find that introduction thank you neil it was really interesting because it's not always that i've had a thing and it made me realize that i also have been very scattered in my life in many aspects so i was smiling while you were saying all these things um, so my first question uh, is a broad topic one, which is, what is yoga? Oof. <laughs> How long have we got? Um, it's really, it's, I think in English we use the word yoga rather than any translation because it's very difficult to translate. In general, when you see somebody translating the word yoga, they tend to translate it as union unifying but it also means it has the sanskrit word that is the root for yoga has also given us the word uh, yoke as in not egg yoke which is what i thought at the beginning but like yoking like the thing perhaps oxen or cows have around their necks to guide them to allow them to carry a cart with perhaps heavy stuff So what does yoga mean? I think it means different things at different times of the practice, but the goal is is union, to feel at one within oneself and within the world. And specifically, what is yoga for you? It, it, it has changed. It's, it has been many... At the beginning, it was very much um, the thing that made me feel healthier, less angry, less less scattered, less frustrated, that um, 
made me observe myself, made me see patterns that I had acquired and were not helpful in the way I led my life. And now yoga is um, is the container within which I live my life. It, it, it channels absolutely how I see everything else because because it's it's an exploratory framework so I see things within it and I try things within it um, and yoga for me is not only the things you were talking about in the introduction on the mat or the cushion for me it's 24 hours I, I think about it all of the time when I'm cooking that dinner when I'm doing the dishes so it permeates everything really so I would say that yoga is everything and take us back to the moment you first came across yoga. Like, what is your yoga origin story? Mm. It's a really interesting one. So the very first time I did yoga, I was a member at the gym. And I had joined a gym because I... I hope you remember that uh, when I fell down some marble stairs in a museum in Bilbao. And um, I lost consciousness for a tiny moment... And I got up and everything was fine biomechanically, but somehow for a long time afterwards I felt out of kilter. Something had been displaced with that fall and I don't know exactly what it was. But the doctor suggested I had to strengthen and I've never done physical exercise. I was a child, I avoided any PE in school and I never did any sports. So I joined the gym and I thought, okay, I have to do this. I'm getting older. I'm, I must have been about early, mid-20s perhaps, 24, 25 when this happened. And I hated the gym, every minute of it. But I thought I needed to, because this was a health matter, I needed to give things a go at the gym. And because the machines and the actual pumping iron didn't work for me, I joined the class. And the first class I did was an Iyengar yoga class, and I hated every minute of it. It was absolutely horrible. A teacher put me in a handstand against the wall and then forgot about me, and I hurt my neck, and it was all a horror story. Then, 10 years later, um, I was dancing. So dance became my thing at that time, um, and I was dancing quite a lot. I moved to Glasgow, and I met somebody called Rosina Bonsu. And Rosina was teaching me dance at the time in a place called Dance House. And Rosina had a class 6 to 7 and another class 8 to 9. So I had an hour in the middle where I was doing nothing because I went to both the early and the late class. And then Rosina put a yoga class in the middle and she said, you should come. And I was like, Rosina, I'm nothing, no, no zen in my life. You know, I like activity, I like music, I like bouncing around. She says, you should come. And one day, because I trusted her implicitly with everything she said, I went to that class. And it only took that class for me to come into yoga, to just like continue. And uh, I began going every week, then various times a week. And then for me, the thing that told me that yoga was here to stay was when, as a Spanish person, I began going to early morning class at 7 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> in January in Glasgow, when it was dark, wet, cold, and I still loved it. And so I guess it's a gradual process, but did you know this was going to be your thing? Like, how did you know that 
um, you wanted to get up early? Like, how how did you know that this was gonna, or did you ever know that this was gonna consume your entire life? <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Um, I think yoga found me rather than me yoga. So yoga is a process, as you well said. And it took hold of me. The person, it began to blossom. It's like you plant a seed and suddenly it began to blossom. And I knew exactly what to do to make things happen. So one of the things that helped me enormously to get up early in the morning uh, in winter was to... I knew from yoga, from working on the mat, that I had to switch off my thinking function at times. That my thinking was not always accurate, an accurate vision of reality, that sometimes I had to feel things, and sometimes I had to switch all and just trust. And this is what I did to go into yoga early in the morning. I kind of switched off the thing that said, bed is better, why don't you stay a little bit longer? And I just was a process of hearing the alarm, getting up, dressing, going, and then thinking afterwards. And I have to say that the beauty of yoga, what kept me going back into a yoga class is Never, ever, ever, ever in the 10 years plus I've been practicing yoga, I've regretted going to a class. Not a single time. So that keeps me going. When I have doubts, it just keeps me going. Um, interesting. And one of the things I pick up on when I see you in yoga classes and teaching yoga and going to yoga is that it seems like there's a kind of tribe of yogis um, how important do you think that is for finding your thing? Like, do you feel like when you're amongst these people that this is your tribe? Absolutely. Um, because we share experiences, we compare, we help each other. So of course it's a tribe because, because it's there and it supports you. In, in yoga terms and in, in Buddhism, this is called the Sangha. And this is a very important part of spiritual development, having a community from which to learn. And um, you know, because you created the word, um, there is a lot of blah blasana in my life. You know, a yoga posture that just yoga chatting. Um, you know, how do you do this? Or how did you manage to get this pose? Or, you know, what kind of classes are you going to? And we all share. And to me, this has been a really important part of my learning actually and I was very lucky to work with Rosina at the early time part of my journey because no every teacher is like that but she was extremely generous and she shared a lot of her experience the highs and the lows and I think this is uh, ge generosity is something that's very much valued in yoga service to the community uh, there is it's a wrong thing to think that yoga is self-indulgent and that we do it for our bodies our minds our breaths Yoga is for the world, the good of the world. So community and fostering a good, healthy, supportive community is absolutely really important. And I wonder, do you know people that don't do yoga postures but live yoga? I wonder that, you know, like if you do need to be a practitioner of yoga asana postures in order to be a yogi. Absolutely not. So when I began studying philosophy, it's quite remarkable the amount of people that study philosophy with me that don't do postures in the way Instagram tells you yoga is. Yoga is not that. Um, I, there are, I know many meditators that don't do postures either. They only sit and meditate. 
And I would say these are the advanced practitioners. And in a way, not, not perhaps yet, I'm not really to relinquish the poses, but this is where my practice is going to, I think. I mean, one of the controversies of recent years came out of this book, The Yoga Body by Mark Singleton. And in this book, he kind of identifies that the postures that we do nowadays were actually derived from Swedish exercises from the 18th century and British military exercises that found their way to India and then got repackaged as kind of ancient yoga. Um, I wonder to what extent does it matter um, the idea that there is an authentic source of yoga? If yoga is all the time and everything, um, I don't think it matters. I think we can get really bogged down with intellectual debates about what is the origin, what is the authority, what is the accurate thing. Um, but one of my teachers says that yoga, practicing yoga, changes the way you open and close doors. And it makes me think that anything can be a yoga posture. It's not what you do, but it's how you do it. So there are many modern uh, versions of yoga that comes perhaps from you know, Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, that are not as ancient as perhaps the, the, the Indian branch of yoga, but one can do yoga in those new poses as well. There is one particularly that I love in yin yoga called Bananasana. It's basically putting yourself in the shape of a banana, laying down on the floor. And it's incredibly meditative and, and very healthy for the body, very, very restful, very peaceful, which is, and, and induces healthy breathing, which is what a yoga pose should do, really. Because the only reason I ask that is because I sometimes think in order to have your thing, it needs to be kind of circumscribed in some way. And if yoga becomes everything and it becomes, you know, without a kind of source and it's just a way of living, um, would it not become diluted? Like, to what extent do you feel like you need the tradition? Mm -hmm. It's a very good question. I think this is the reason why I began studying other parts of yoga that were not the posture. So the philosophy in particular, the ancient texts like the sutras, you know, there are 196 statements on yoga that date perhaps I think is around 500 before Christ so to me that's the framework the framework is those texts but those texts it doesn't tell you put your leg behind the head in fact it says very little about posture and those texts understand posture as good sitting good healthy stable and easeful sitting and of course, nowadays we do we have such a dysfunctional life biomechanically that we need to do a lot to our bodies to be able to sit for a long time. But all yogis could sit for a long time. And, I mean, I guess having your thing, uh, you know, you've taken it so far. Like, you know, you've started, what, 11 years ago you were saying, or, you know. Um, can you imagine finding something else like what does it mean to be committed to something and have faith in something kind of keep uh loyalty to a thing how would you know if there was something new like what is um what does it mean in those terms yeah this is a very good question because as i told you before i haven't had a thing always in fact i was very scattered 
Um, I studied fine art in university and I had been drawing all my life. But when I studied fine art, I decided, like, it was, it was a given that I would go to the painting department because this is what I did for a long time. And I joined the painting department and I started doing sculpture. So then they moved me, the teachers moved me to the sculpture department and I began painting. And then neither of them worked and I joined the photography department. Then I did a bit of video. I did some photography again, like it was, I was completely scattered. And the mental image I have of this time of my life is um, a horizontal arrows going everywhere. There, here. And as, as, as you know, because our house is full of this stuff, um, I have tried sewing, ukulele playing, um, you know, all these different things to see if I could find my thing. And I still see the must arrows horizontally whereas with yoga I have changed the practice so it's not static it's not I found my thing I rest but kind of the arrow goes down deeper and deeper it's in one place but it just lengthens if you see what I mean that's my mental image about it so I'm still doing the same thing but going deeper and it feels different because of course it's new to me there is some sort of journey or progression I mean one of the things I wonder you about going deeper is that it becomes like have you ever seen the front cover of the dark side of the moon mm -hmm. album where you get this light that goes into the crystal and it comes out of the crystal as a rainbow and i sometimes wonder if having your one thing allows you to um, absorb anything and make it part of that thing once you've gone deep enough so I don't know if, you know, like ukulele could be done in a yogic way or sewing becomes yoga, uh, but everything could be absorbed into it. But I was wondering, is there anything you think can't be absorbed into that kind of deeper sense of perspective? Or if you think that's a, a good way of looking at it? Yes. So you're asking me whether... There is a thing that cannot be absorbed into my yogin vision of how I see the world. I, I don't think there are things outside it. I don't. Um, because it's, it's a unifying perspective. So I would instantly try to... And, and it's about how you perceive and how you are with yourself. This changes your self-relation as well. So... Anything that comes to me, you know, um, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine. Uh, in fact, the war in Ukraine is a big one for yoga, I would say. Like, I try to, to see these things from a yogic perspective. I would love to try to play the ukulele now to see what has happened to my ukulele since I took up yoga. Why is the, the war in Ukraine a fit subject for yoga? Well... One of the main texts in the yogic tradition, the Bhagavad Gita, happens on the eve of a big war. And there is all these questions about why war and why it needs to happen and how one should fight and one should, how one should behave. And uh, the teachings of yoga are given in a battlefield, which of course doesn't mean it's the battlefield of the war in Ukraine and Russia, the battlefield of us living with ourselves in conflict every day with patterns of behavior, doing things that don't suit us or sabotage us. But kind of, you can also see the war in Ukraine perhaps a little bit more literally through a yogic lens. 
Okay, imagine this situation. Vladimir Putin has listened to this podcast. He likes what you're saying. He calls you to be his Krishna. <laughs> and he's Arjuna in this situation. He's like, I'm not sure if I... I'm not sure if I should continue the war in Ukraine. Um, you didn't know he was Indian. <laughs> um, what advice do you give Vladimir Putin? Oh, um, I cannot put myself in the shoes of Krishna because I'm so much Arjuna myself. I am the student, um, not the teacher. I would certainly tell him to read the Bhagavad Gita. In fact, the whole story where the Bhagavad Gita is said, the Mahabharata, so he also sees how one gets to that war. And actually listen to Krishna directly, not, not to, to Krishna through me. I would tell him to read the book. I mean, he, he hasn't got that long. He just needs <laughs> some advice. Because um, I, think, I think you're right. Like the Bhagavad Gita does advocate that this guy should go to war with his brothers, right? It's a war of five brothers against 99 cousins. So they're fighting family. Um, which in, in reality is seen as, you know, tendencies within us that are part of us, but that they, don't, they no longer serve us. So perhaps Vladimir Putin could do with actually doing some yoga, you know, reflecting and, and trying to see the unity in the world, what, what, bind, what, what kind of like, what unifies us rather than what separates us. Mm. I think that's the advice I would give him. Because he is very into judo, mm -hmm. which is another Eastern practice. Uh, so he's not a million miles away from yoga. Um, but, I mean, there was another controversy recently with Patabi Joyce, who was the founder of Ashtanga Yoga, which is the yoga that you teach and practice. Um, and I, I guess the question people ask when they hear about Patabi Joyce, who has kind of got into trouble well, after his death, for um, inappropriate adjustments. I wonder if yoga, you know, as a practice, does improve morality. You know, we talk about Putin, and we talk about Patabi Joyce, and other gurus, Bikram mm -hmm. being another one. Um, you know, is it just a problem with the guru, or, you know, does yoga lead people astray. Mm, it's a very interesting one. You would think that the world was not a great advert for yoga, isn't it, with those particular examples. Um, I think it's a difficult one. and I, I think one can never stop doing yoga and, and inquiring, I'm not going to say questioning, because it's not that, it's not doubting, it's inquiring, it's investigating, am I doing this for the right reasons, what path is this leading me to, one cannot sit in the seat of the guru and says, I'm a guru, call me a guru, um, that's, that's always very dangerous as was demonstrated, and if you know, you've seen the Bikram documentary, you know that this is very much how he sits, he sits on a, um, you know, with the air conditioning around him, with a very particular setting that's different to, to his students, and there is this kind of separation already, is this yoga? I'm not sure I could say it is. From from the documentary, I've never met Mr. Bikram or Mr. Patabi Joyce, never met them. So I cannot comment 
directly on that. And where do you think yoga is taking you? Like where, what is your, the direction of your yogic practices? I try to take one step at a time. So I know the step I'm taking, that I've got perhaps the toes lifted and the heel on the ground and I'm going to take the step forward, is towards uh, studying the language of yoga, Sanskrit, uh, the Devanagari the, the script. I found um, that also has united many aspects of my life. Um, the, the, the calligraphy aspect reminds me of my training in drawing and of course languages because English is, I'm, I'm Spanish so English is not my first language and there is, there is something really nice that happens in my brain when I, when I study Sanskrit and I'm a bit fascinated by the grammar and what it all comes and that is leading me as well towards voice practices, towards singing and chanting and who knows, maybe there is a space for uh, yoga chanting with a ukulele because in the in the yoga sutras there is this thing about yogic superpowers mm -hmm. and i've always been fascinated by yogic superpowers but have yet to see them in practice now i'm wondering what do you think of yogic superpowers and how do i get them mm. so that's a chapter in the yoga sutras is book 3 that very rarely gets taught so i've done many courses on chapter 1 chapter 2, and I know people who teach chapter 4, but I don't know anybody who teaches the chapter on extraordinary powers. But I have one teacher, when, when I ask my teacher Sudhir, I says, why don't you teach chapter 3? And he says that is because chapter 3 is not the superpowers you can get. It's a word of caution. That if you get to this state when you begin levitating, time traveling, reading the minds of others, these are not necessarily good things to do. This should be, you shouldn't stay there. You should remain centered in yoga while this is happening to you and let it pass because there is chapter four. So I'm not sure if they are superpowers, these things like levitating and... Uh, although I quite would like to <laughs> get into other people's thoughts and see what you're thinking. And time travelling will be very nice too. And finally, just to wrap up, I was wondering if you could give us some tips on how to find your thing, or at least how to stick with it, how to, to dedicate. Like, okay, first tip, how does someone find their thing what advice would you give mm -hmm. in my experience you have to be receptive to the stuff around you so i don't have pets but many people who have cats and dogs say you don't choose them they choose you and i think it's a little bit of this you need to be receptive rather than actively every time that i've actively said you remember at the beginning of the pandemic i thought i'm gonna take up embroidery Certainly embroidery did not take me. <laughs> so you have to let these things happen and go with it up to a point, I would say. Because even if you really like something, you know, you feel it's chosen you, there will always be a dip. There'll always be a bit yeah. in it where it becomes a negative experience mm -hmm. or you get upset by it. The amount of people I know that have done yoga and mm -hmm. abandoned it at least for a while, is, mm -hmm. you know, is it a lot? So this is the essential practice. You have to ride the plateau because it's in the plateau when 
is not going forward or back where the actual magic happens of yoga. And this is life. Life is, you know, you, you have to see the, 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 the amazing nature of it in the small stuff because not everybody you win the lottery, not everybody, every, every day is Christmas, no, you know, like the beauty is in the plateau, in the return to this, in the getting deeper with very little, I would say. This is my experience of yoga very much. So usually to my students, I encourage them when I see them doubting and getting bored, I try to explain to them that this is the practice itself. This is what it's for. Go and elaborate a little bit on that. Like, uh, you know, imagine you've got a student who, you know, is in pain or they hate it or, you know, like they're not enjoying it anymore or, you know, they they haven't got time. Like, how? Do, what would you say to someone yeah. like that? So those these are three very different things. Pain, never good. Never, ever, ever. Like, pain, like, takes away from yoga itself because you're concentrating on one thing and you're actually not doing yoga. So I would go to great lengths to avoid pain in a student of, of any kind, emotional, physical, absolutely. Um, get them to see people, to treat that pain and adapt the yoga practice. Yoga can be anything. You know, it doesn't have to do handstands to do yoga. So we would adapt the practice. Boredom is a, is a difficult one, I think. Um, and I would try to explain to them the magic of their body and what their body can do and how different it is every day. I think we get bored because we're not paying attention to what is changing. Ashtanga practice is very given to boredom because we do the same poses every day, all the time. So many people get bored. So I have to show them that the practice might be the same chain of poses. But you change. So this is the investigation. It's like the math is like a lab. And then the making time is also a big one because we live in a society that doesn't give a lot of time for yoga, a lot of time for any pleasure, leisure or self-care unless we really need it because we are sick. So it's not about not having time. It's about making the time. And the students that actually have made the time, this is why I teach so early in the morning, practice so early in the morning, is of course there is time. You just have got to make it. It means some sacrifices. It might mean going to bed an hour earlier, but it will be worth it. That's what I try to tell them. So everything you want to do, if you want to find your thing, you will have to make some sacrifices. There is no gain of finding your thing without some sacrifices. You need to know what those are and integrate them and, and live with that and actually understand that this is what this will demand of you. So integration, acceptance, any final words for our listeners? Joy is a big one. Do what gives you joy. What makes, my, my teacher David Svensson says, whenever you do a yoga practice, your only task is to feel better after than before. Whatever you need to do for that to happen, even if it's having a sleep, you do it. Yeah, you need to feel better afterwards. And his definition of a yogi is, a yogi is somebody who, whatever he or she is, they leave the space better than when they found it. It could be litter picking, a smile to somebody. It doesn't have to be changing the world. And I think those are very good things for finding your thing. You know, Does it make you feel better? Does it make the world a better place? Well, 
you certainly make my world a better place. So thank you very much, Laura, for speaking with me on this uh, podcast. And uh, yeah, I uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you.